0: Could you please open your Bible to Romans chapter 7? Our approach this morning is going to be what I guess you could call an exegetical overview or or survey, rather than a detailed verse-by-verse exposition because of the nature uh, of the text, which I trust Uh, you'll see what I mean very soon. But let's pray, and uh, then we'll make a start. Father, thank you. Uh, for your word, thank you that you have spoken and that faithful men of old have recorded your word under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Thank you that it's been preserved. And uh, Lord, thank you that uh, we can have great confidence that what we have uh, written in our Bibles is from you. And Father, thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, that you have sent uh, to grant to us uh, the, the gift of illumination. Uh, Lord, we, we need his help. Uh, To understand, and we need uh, your grace to apply, and we ask uh, that that work uh, would happen this day, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I prepared uh, for this sermon on a text that has actually known centuries of controversy and much heated debate, I decided it would be wise to read extensively. Now, rest assured, I tend to read quite a lot for every sermon. But I thought extra reading would be wise for this particular text. Now, from everything that I read, there was one phrase that stuck in my mind more than anything else. And one author said this. He said, Paul must have been a golfer. Now, you're probably thinking, well, that wasn't what I expected, Brendan. I was expecting some deep theological thing that you gleaned from your studies. Uh, But that's what I remembered. Paul Must have been a golfer now rest assured. I believe that I have learnt more and um, you can be the judge of that by the end But for somebody who enjoys the game of golf like myself I felt this remark illustrates well the tension in this text because usually when I play golf I don't do what I want to do and I do what I don't want to do Okay, I stand over the ball and I think don't hit it in the water That's what I don't want to do, and sure enough, I end up hitting it in the water. I stand at the tee. I desire to hit my drive straight. That's what I want to do, but mid-ball flight, it's like my ball puts on its blinker and turns to the left savagely. Again, I didn't do what I wanted to do, and then when I finally get to the green, I line up the putt. I want to sink the putt, but I miss the putt. So for me, golf is often not doing what I want to do and doing what I don't want to do. And although most of you have probably never played golf, and I'm not doing a wonderful job at convincing you to take it up, but perhaps you can relate to this in another sphere of interest in your life. The tension of wanting to do something and yet not doing it, or not wanting to do something but doing it. And this is one of the central themes running through this famous portion of scripture. Verse 15, for what I would that I do not, but what I hate that I do. Verse 19, for the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. There's a real tension, even frustration. There's a desire to do some things and not do other things. And yet one ends up doing the opposite to what they desire. And I'm sure you have experienced this in your life. You want to do some good thing, and you don't end up doing it. Or you know you shouldn't do something, and you end up doing it. Can you relate to that? It's very frustrating, isn't it? But how does this common scenario fit in the flow of the arguments about the role of the law in the life of the believer. That's what Romans 7 is all about. Okay, how are we to interpret this text? And as before alluded to, this is not an easy question. There is much debate and variety of opinion. And the question that's the key that unlocks the door of this text is this, who is the I referring to? Okay, who is the person described in this text? And there are three answers most commonly proposed. Number one, this is an unconverted person, either Paul before his conversion or any unsaved individual. Number two, this is an immature, worldly, backslidden Christian. Or number three, this is Paul himself, a mature believer, and by extension, he represents the believer in general, and I like to spend okay, significant time determining the correct answer because that will be the grid or the lens through which we view everything in this text. And what I like to do is to state upfront what I believe is the best interpretation and then defend that particular point, which will hopefully deflate the other interpretation. So I believe this is Paul speaking about his day-to-day life. And by extension, it's about the Christian life for the normal believer. Now, it's important to understand that this is not everything that there is to say about the Christian life. We need to be careful that we don't forget everything else that the Bible says when we're studying one portion of Scripture. That's how we become imbalanced and can end up in error. Furthermore, this does not describe each and every moment of the believer's life. Okay, this is not the totality of the Christian spiritual experience. It's not that every single day will be like Romans 7. But nevertheless, it describes a common experience in the Christian life. But why is it best to understand this portion of Scripture as speaking of the normal Christian Experience. I want to give you 10 pieces of evidence. Number one, the language used. Okay, if you were to read any other piece of literature that's written like this, you would instantly assume that the writer is speaking about themselves in their current situation. This is written in the first person. The word I appears 27 times in 12 verses in our translation. Just about all of the verbs are in the present tense. And hence the obvious interpretation is that Paul is talking about his current experience. That is how we would interpret other literature written this way. And what adds weight to this evidence is that if you look back from verse 7 to 13, past tense verbs are used. And this is when Paul was speaking of his pre-conversion life, the role that the law had there. But from verse 14 onwards, he uses present tense exclusively when he's referring to himself. And this abrupt and obvious change supports the idea that Paul is describing himself as a Christian. If this is referring to him in his unsaved state, why change the verb tense? Number two, love for the law. Okay, throughout this text, it is stressed again that the law is a good thing. Okay, Paul has made that point in the first 13 verses and he continues to do so. Okay, there's not a problem with the law, it doesn't need to be chucked out. Verse 14 the law is spiritual. Verse 16, the law is good. And verse 22, I delight in the law. That's a declaration that he loves the law. This is an echo of David in Psalm 19. The word of the Lord is perfect. It's pure, sure, right. It's more desirable than gold. The word translated delight in our text, it's only found here in the New Testament. And it stresses that this is more than an intellectual assent. It's a pleasure and delight of the heart. That's how we regarded the law. And this sense of the moral excellence of God's law and a love for it is consistent with a mature Christian. An unbeliever certainly does not possess love and delight for God's law. In fact, Romans 8, 7 says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God... For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So in other words, the unbeliever does not and cannot be subject to and delight in God's law. And neither does the carnal worldly Christian. And hence, we must assume that this is speaking of the normal Christian. For this characteristic of loving the law is consistent with that interpretation. Number three, desire to keep the law. Not only is the law loved, but there's a strong desire to keep it. And this is very evident in the struggle that's passionately described throughout, that there is a yearning to do good, that being keeping the law. And then he hates what is evil, that is breaking the law. This is verse 19. It says, for the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Okay, that this is the struggle. But it does reveal a desire that there's a burning zeal to do what is right. He is not rebellious toward the law. And that attitude is far more consistent with a mature Christian. One who is walking in the spirit will desire the things of the spirit, whereas one walking in the flesh will perform the works of the flesh. This describes somebody who wants to obey and please God. A worldly carnal Christian does not have that goal, nor does an unbeliever. Number four, acknowledging one's sinfulness and failures. One of the striking features of this text is its Honesty. It openly and willingly acknowledges one's sinfulness. In verse 14, it says, but I am carnal, which literally means I am of the flesh. And notice he does not say he's in the flesh because believers are no longer in the flesh, but the flesh is still in them. So this is acknowledging sinfulness. This continues to come out in the passionate cry verse 24 he says o wretched man that i am he also identifies in verse 18 that there's no good thing in his flesh that's acknowledging what we call depravity and throughout there's a constant consciousness of and concern about one's failure to obey the law and I would argue that this is consistent with the Christian. But there's, there's a lack of self-righteousness and self-confidence which characterizes the unsaved. And the Apostle Paul certainly possessed that when he was unconverted, he was secure, he was smug. Read Philippians chapter 3. Okay, the attitudes of self-disgust and self-despair throughout Romans 7 are more consistent with the mature Christian. Because here's the thing. The closer one gets to God, the more we will see our own sin. The more you grow, the more you will realize how much you need to grow. Whereas a worldly believer tends to live under the illusion that they do measure up. As one commentator said, the level of spiritual insight, brokenness, contrition and humility that characterize the person depicted in Romans 7 are marks of spiritual Maturity. Number five, the context of the letter. We need to remember that Paul is discussing sanctification. And hence we must ask what best fits at this point of the discussion. Would it make more sense for Paul to speak about his sin struggle before he became a Christian? Or describe his ongoing spiritual struggle as a Christian. Now, to me, it seems somewhat awkward and misplaced to revert back to one's sin struggles in an unconverted state, especially because Paul says this elsewhere in Philippians three six. He regarded himself blameless when it came to the law. Okay, that's how he regarded himself in his unredeemed state. That doesn't sound consistent with this struggle in Romans seven, and hence that lends weight to the view that. This is Paul as a Christian. And furthermore, if one is teaching on sanctification, it makes much more sense to focus on the existing struggle because it's here where everyone is at in the trenches of life. Number six is personal experience. Well, it's very dangerous to argue from personal experience. I understand that, it's very subjective. And yet I know that I can identify with this passionate struggle described as a believer. And I'm sure you can as well. You experience this battle within. Any honest Christian would acknowledge it. Okay, what's described here is not inconsistent with our experience as a believer. It's not as though we read this and go, well, hey, I've never experienced that in my entire life. We would testify that this is a reality, even when we're striving to live for the Lord. And here's the ironic thing. When we drift from the Lord, we aren't as sensitive about sin like we see here, because we've quenched the work of the Spirit. And hence, from experience, we can see that this text is far more compatible with a mature believer. Number seven, this is consistent with other scriptures. Paul teaches elsewhere of the spiritual struggle that continues in the life of the believer. It's not as though Romans 7 is the only portion of scripture in the whole Bible that deals with a struggle with sin. A couple of examples. Paul says that he needs to bring his body into subjection. 1 Corinthians 9:27. That implies a fight. He needs to beat it. it takes effort. There's a struggle. Galatians 5.17 speaks of a battle raging within us. The flesh and the spirit. These two are contrary to one another. And again, this continues to paint a picture of a struggle with sin for the believer. Remembering the unbeliever doesn't have the spirit. Colossians chapter 3 calls for the believer to mortify their members. Put it to death. And we could go to many other portions of scripture. Romans 7 is consistent with the Bible's description of the normal Christian life. That's how we interpret these other portions of Scripture. Why apply a different interpretation to this text? Number eight, this is consistent with the doctrine of sanctification. When we speak of sanctification, this is what we mean. One theologian offers this compact definition, and it's in your outline. He says this, sanctification is a progressive, Okay, underline that word, sanctification is a progressive work of God and believers. Okay, Notice it's God and believers that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. And the same theologian offers five differences between justification and sanctification. And this is really helpful because if we get them confused, we can end up in all kinds of, of error. Okay, justification is legal standing. Sanctification is internal condition. Justification once for all time. Sanctification continuous throughout life. Justification entirely God's work. Sanctification we cooperate. Justification perfect in this life. Sanctification not perfect in this life. Justification the same in all Christians. Sanctification greater in some than in others. And this understanding is perfectly consistent with what Paul teaches. His sanctification is progressive. And it's never complete in this life. And hence a struggle with sin is in perfect harmony with the doctrine of sanctification. We have no reason to explain this away as incompatible with a mature believer. But rather, if we understand the biblical doctrine of sanctification, we will see that this description in Romans 7 is fitting for all believers as we strive to make progress in our Christian lives by God's grace. And yet some have a hard time believing that a Christian can struggle as seen in Romans 7. But understand, unlike justification, you and I have a role to play in sanctification. Okay, when we think about sanctification, it requires both heavenly energy and human effort. This is seen most clearly in Philippians chapter 2. And understand that wherever we have a role to play, there's going to be failure. And also, sanctification is not complete. It's not perfected. It's not finished in this life. And when we have this understanding, Romans 7 becomes a puzzle that's a lot easier to piece together. What it describes harmonizes perfectly with the Christian who is striving to make progress in their sanctification. Number nine, understanding sold under sin. Okay, those who propose that Romans 7 is speaking of an unbeliever, they make much of the phrase sold under sin in verse 14. Okay, they reason that this is incompatible with what has just been taught in Romans 6. So how are we to understand this phrase? Well, one commentator offers this explanation, and again, this is on the outline. He said, the phrase sold under sin has caused many to miss Paul's point. And to take those words as evidence, the person being talked about is not a Christian. But Paul uses a similar phrase in verse 23, where he makes clear that only his members, that is his fleshly body, is captivity to the law of sin. That lingering part of his unredeemed humanness is still sinful and consequently makes warfare against the new and redeemed part of him, which is no longer sin's prisoner and is now its avowed enemy. Paul's strong words about his condition emphasize that sin can continue to have dreadful power in a Christian's life. Sin is so wretched and powerful that even in the redeemed person, it hangs on and contaminates his living and frustrates his in a desire to obey the will of God. Understand our bodies are yet to be redeemed. That's in the future. And hence the flesh is still alive and active, and it wars against our redeemed nature. There's a battle within between the flesh and the spirit. And this phrase, sold under sin, explains the extreme nature of the battle that is raging. It identifies what we call the already and not yet of the Christian life. Here we still possess a remnant of the sinfulness that plagues mankind. Okay, yes, we have being saved from its total mastery and condemnation. That's justification. And yet we still fight its presence. Okay, we're being delivered from its dominion, set free from its penalty. And yet it's still present. And we fight against its power. And it can still have dreadful power over us like we are enslaved. Okay, that's what's meant by being sold under sin. It's a metaphor illustrating The existing struggle with the flesh in one's body. One's defeats can make one feel like they are enslaved as a believer. And this will continue as we wait for the completion of our salvation. And this leads us to the final piece of evidence, number 10, the longing for deliverance. Now, this portion of scripture ends with hope. That there is this yearning desire to be delivered from this body. For the work of salvation to be complete. And this longing is expressed in verses 24 and 25. And what's interesting is that it's very similar to what is expressed in verse 23 of Romans chapter 8. There it talks about groaning in ourselves, waiting for the redemption of... Of our bodies, And that's certainly a Christian. No one would dispute or debate that. And furthermore, in verse 25, there's confidence in Christ. That's not a trait of the unregenerate. But this longing for the completion of salvation is incompatible with both the unbeliever and worldly Christian. So if those 10 evidences presented, I trust that you're convinced that this portion of Scripture speaks about the Christian life. Now, maybe that already seemed very obvious to you, and you think that I've laboured the point unnecessarily, and I respect that. But due to being a vital interpretive point, I didn't want to take it for granted that everybody would immediately agree. But in this text, Paul is speaking of his own personal struggles, and by extension, this is what we all experience. Now, sure, that this isn't everything, and it's vital to grasp. This is not the totality of the Christian life. We won't necessarily wrestle and struggle every single moment of every single day. There will be times of victory. There will be times of progress. And yet, this is a very real part of our Christian life, because we're living in the already and not yet. Understand, salvation is secure, Jesus has secured it, and yet it won't be completed until a later time. And hence, right now, in our sanctification, we battle with sin. We've been saved from its penalty. The old man is dead, and yet our bodies have not yet been redeemed. And hence, we struggle with sin. Yes, we can have victory, because sanctification is about being freed from the power of sin. But we will not be freed from its presence until after this life. That's glorification. And hence, Romans 7 explains what we often experience in our life. Okay, with that said, I'd like to draw out four points of application that I trust will help us in our sanctification. And this will also help us to further understand this text. So number one, the law is good and we should desire to keep it. Now, Paul, throughout this seventh chapter, has been determined to labor the point that the law is good. Okay, the law is not bad. It's not the problem. Sin is the issue. And Paul states categorically in verse 16 that the law is good. And the fact that he desires to do it, that confirms its goodness. Okay, the law of God is good because it reflects his character and nature. The law is revelatory. It discloses what God is like. Each law is like a brush stroke on the canvas that reveals more fully what God is like. And furthermore, the law outlines the standard of behavior that God expects. And hence, it is a good thing. And we see throughout this text that there is a yearning desire to obey the law. Sure, this doesn't always happen. That's The tension but the intention is to obey and this text doesn't say that paul and the believer never does good okay this doesn't say that he's unable to do any good thing at all but rather he's unable to measure up completely and understand as christians there ought to be a desire to obey One of the roles of the law in Christian discipleship is to show us how we are to live. And we ought to yearn to conform to it. Yes, we fall short, which we'll come to. But a trait of the redeemed life is that we should want to obey. As Christians, we ought to be concerned about personal holiness. We ought to be actively pursuing it. The mature Christian will be zealous for spiritual growth. Understand that's a necessary ingredient in this text. If there wasn't a concern, this makes no sense at all. The one who is a believer will have a desire to do what is right. The Christian will care about personal holiness and spiritual growth. And I trust that is something that you care about and are actively pursuing by God's grace. Number two, the law possesses no power to sanctify us. The law is good in that it reveals sin. It shows the standard, but the law is limited because it possesses no ability or power to help you and I keep the standard. And that is so important for us to grasp in our sanctification. And I think many Christians get this wrong. We understand that the law has no power to justify. Okay, we we get that. But we can think that it can sanctify us. Okay, and, And all we have to do is try harder and just keep it. But we need to understand that the law that cannot justify also cannot sanctify. But rather the law continues to point out the sin in the believer... So that we look to another for ongoing deliverance. Understand the law shows us the rules. The law says that we should keep them, but it gives us no power to keep its demands. And hence the answer is not just to try harder. Just pull yourself up by the bootlaces. Okay? For trying to please God in your own strength will always lead to disheartening frustration. So Romans 7 prepares us for Romans 8, which is all about the Holy Spirit. Romans 7 rids us of self-reliance. It reveals our need for help. And we cast ourselves upon the Lord. We need His grace working through the Spirit in order to make progress in our spiritual lives. And this is evident in the final two verses of chapter 7. He says, O wretched man that I am. The Greek word wretched is more literally wretched through the exhaustion of hard labor. So we can work and work and work in our own strength and yet we fall short. We still fail. Notice what is said next. Who shall deliver me? This shows that help is needed in our sanctification. So when it comes to spiritual growth, as I mentioned previously, it requires two things. Heavenly energy and human effort. We need to cooperate with the Spirit, but understand we need the grace of God to be working through the Spirit of God. We need that power. And the law contains no power to help us in our sanctification. Okay, we're justified by grace and we're sanctified by grace. We need divine power. Number three, we still struggle with sin. Now, one thing that I actually find encouraging in this text is even someone as great as Paul still struggled with sin. And that helps me because I still struggle with sin. And, you know, can you resonate with this description in Romans 7? This frustration of desiring to do good, but not doing it. Or not desiring to do wrong, but still doing it. We see this described in verses 15 to 19. It's like playing golf. That's the battle. That's the struggle for the believer. We still sin. We still struggle. But understand, that's the normal Christian experience. Believers still sin. Now, sure, we shouldn't be happy about that. We shouldn't be content. But that's the reality of the text. Yes, sin is inconsistent with who we are in Christ. This is what Paul is declaring in verse 17. Notice what he says, now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Now this is not Paul trying to excuse himself, hey, it's not my fault, but rather saying, you know, I am a new man in Christ, that the old man is dead, but I still struggle because of indwelling sin, sin that dwelleth in me. Okay, that's where the inclination to sin comes from, the flesh. This is why believers still sin, because we have indwelling sin. And we will not be completely rid of that in this life. And the continuing presence of evil in a believer's life is so universal. That Paul refers to it not as an uncommon thing, but as such a common reality as to be called a law in verse 21. And what this means is that it's an operating spiritual principle. It's like the law of gravity. And it's an unfortunate principle that will continue until we're free from the flesh. The same idea is seen in verse 23 where it says another law in my members. Indwelling sin is an active and aggressive principle within even for spirit-filled believers. And hence a Christian will struggle with sin. My friend, please understand that perfection is not a possibility in this life. Okay? Sinless perfection, as taught by some, it is not a category found anywhere in the New Testament. Okay? We will wrestle with, we will battle sin wherever we are in these bodies. Hence, okay, it doesn't mean that you are not a Christian just because you sin. The wicked one will often sow seeds of doubts in our minds, and hence we need to have it settled that we will still battle sin. We ought not to be content about that. And the Bible does warn that one may not be in the kingdom of God if there's habitual gross sin and there's no repentance. That's true. But there's nothing in the Bible that advocates perfection in this life. My friend, we're in a spiritual battle. And sin will continue to be a struggle for all of our lives. Often, often we won't do what we know we should. We don't get up in the morning and read our Bible despite knowing we should. We don't show kindness and grace to our spouse, children or colleagues despite knowing we should. We do things that we know we shouldn't. We, We explode in anger. We struggle with lust. That's the real Christian life. And wherever wherever there's life in these bodies, we will be battling sin. We will spend much time in the frustration in Romans 7. Yes, there should be progress. Yes, there should be growth. That's what sanctification is all about. But this will not be complete until after this life. Which leads to the fourth point of application, our future hope. In verse 24, the question is asked, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Okay, this stresses that the body is the issue, okay, because it's unredeemed. And the word deliver has the basic idea of rescuing from danger and was used of a soldier going to a wounded comrade in the battlefield and carrying them to safety. And that's a beautiful picture. And there are others who see this as a reference to practice of ancient kings. And this is not a pretty picture. They tormented their prisoners by shackling them to decomposing corpses. The living strapped to the dead. It's gross. And perhaps Paul had this in mind. And he longed to be free from this wretched body. But perhaps both of these images can be combined. As Christians, we can feel as though we, we have this dead, stinking carcass tied to us. that sin that we're struggling with. We have this new life within. We have the spirit. And yet sin is still attached to us. But understand, because of Jesus Christ, he was the one who became like us, took on himself human flesh, except without sin. Okay, his body was never tainted by sin, and he died in our place to ensure our complete salvation. He's carried us to safety, and there's a time coming when the work that has started will be completed. My friend, there's a time coming when the presence of sin will be completely eradicated. Our bodies made new, indwelling sin completely Eradicated, And that struggle with sin will be no more. The Romans 7 encounter that we have so many times in our life, it will never happen again. My friend, that is our future hope. Okay, the gospel doesn't just leave us beaten up in the dust of our sin, but it lifts us up. And hence we can say with Paul in verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. My friend, this is what we have in store for us. And that functions as a launch pad into Romans 8. But as we await that glorious day, we continue to fight the battle with sin. Okay, the Christian will sin. The Christian will struggle. The Christian life is going to be hard. It's often discouraging. But we have the Holy Spirit to help us now. And one day, one day, the battle will be over. Jesus has already secured the victory. One day the trump will sound. And in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. And forever, forever we will dwell with Jesus. And we will be like Jesus. And we will be completely free from sin forever. That, my friend, is the good news of the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you uh, for your word. Uh, I do pray that uh, everything that uh, I've said this morning makes sense, and that that it would, you know, help us uh, as, as we as we continue uh, to, to battle uh, with sin. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that helps us uh, in our lives, as we'll see in Romans chapter eight. And uh, Lord, thank you for our uh, glorious hope that one day uh, the work of salvation will be complete, and we and we long. For that day, but in the meantime, please help us uh, as we continue to strive to live for you. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.